You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. So I was in sixth grade. Boy Scout camp was next week, and I was prepared. Prepared not because I had memorized what I was supposed to memorize or ready to get my merit badge or anything like that. Actually, I was a pretty terrible Boy Scout, but I was prepared because... The previous week, I had gone to Kames on North Main Street, and I had procured the dream of every 12-year-old boy, the 14-piece Swiss Army pocket knife. You know what I'm talking about. Raise your hand if that's, if you've ever, yeah, see, there is something about like 12-year-old boys and pocket knives. Like, we love this thing. And what happened for me, maybe this is your story, is like, of course mom has like an electric can opener at home. But now I've got one on my knife. Let me just like break that thing out. Of course, dad has like a 12-piece screwdriver set. Doesn't matter. I've got like four of them right here. Scissors right here. I'm ready to go. This was like the essential survival tool so that when I parachuted into the Swiss Alps and I was left for dead by the recovery team, this little piece was the essential tool for survival. Hmm. And what's really funny about the whole thing is I probably only ever used like two of those pieces on there. This was essential. I'd like to ask you that question only in a spiritual lens. What is really essential for you in your spiritual life? I think it's true of pocket knives and I think it's true of our spiritual lives. When it comes down to us, most of us probably have a butter knife spirituality. Maybe we've got something with a lot of attachments on it, a lot of gadgets and gizmos, but what is essential, really? Love to hear your thoughts on that question. Just to put it above the fold, when you listen to news reports that shift jarringly from news about mass shootings to commercials about water softeners and siding for your home, what do you do with that? If you're a parent in this room, how do you give your kids life, confidence, hope, and assurance? If this keeps up, whatever your this is, how do you keep your spiritual head about you? What is essential, really? So last week, we started a four-week series simply called The Holy Spirit, and we made the case that dependence, while our world looks at dependence as a liability, in God's economy... Dependence is actually a virtue. And we closed last week. I asked you to consider a question, and I hope you thought about it this week, but I'm under no illusion. Maybe you didn't. How is your life different because of the Holy Spirit? Did you think about that? I hope you did. Could you live the life that you're living now without the Holy Spirit, on your own steam, on your own power, with your own direction? So to keep that on the front burner, here's where we're going the next three weeks. Today we're looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual. This is the narrowest we're going to be. The next week we're zooming up and we're going to look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Really important. 
And then we're going to close out in uh, just a couple of weeks with talking about how do I listen to the Holy Spirit? How do I know that this is God leading me and not just a really strong cup of coffee? <laughs> Romans chapter 8, where we're going to be this morning. One of my favorite chapters in all of God's Word, and we're going to try and bite the whole thing off in once. The Apostle Paul shows us that the Holy Spirit gives us what's essential because the Holy Spirit shows us God's goodness. Holy Spirit gives us what's essential because the Holy Spirit shows us God's goodness. So Romans 8, you can turn there. There's going to be some on the screens. But before we get to that, a little bit of context this morning. Three facts that I want you to know. So first off, we are parachuting into what's arguably one of the most dense, theologically packed places in all of the New Testament. Romans, like a lot of you may know, was written by a former church persecutor turned church planter named Paul. In his former life, Paul persecuted Christians. He knocked on the door where churches were meeting, grabbed Christians by the hair, and he killed them. And then he has this amazing conversion experience with Jesus where God converts all of that passion and energy from persecuting the church and persecuting Christ to building the church and glorifying Christ. Romans is Paul's magnum opus, his masterpiece. This is his lawyer's treatise on the sufficiency of Christ and Christ alone to fix what is wrong with our world and show us what is essential. Second thing that we've got to know. It's super dangerous for us to dive into Romans chapter 8 without trying to know where Paul is coming from or what he's just said. Okay, this is called context and so at the risk of dangerously oversimplifying, let me try to distill Romans 1 through 7 in one idea. Some of you are laughing right now going, this will be fun. Romans 1 through 7, if you had to just bracket it, here's Paul's push. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a greater Savior. That's really oversimplifying, <laughs> But that's the crux of one through seven. And here's why I bring that up. Everything that Romans eight is about to unfold for us, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is dependent on, is connected to, follows on the heels of chapters one through seven. So our next 31 minutes is gonna be this explosion of encouraging words from the Apostle Paul about the Holy Spirit. But you've got to understand what I'm saying. You don't get chapter eight until you get through one through seven. And I mean that for you personally. Until you have said, I am a great sinner and Jesus is a greater savior. Until you've said that, Romans eight is like this beautiful painting that's hanging in a dark art gallery. You can't see it because the lights aren't on yet. Romans one through seven sets up Romans eight. Third piece of context and last before we get in. Romans 8 is one of the few chapters in the New Testament without an imperative verb. Okay, imperative verbs. If you're a grammar person, you know these are the command words, right? They tell us what to do. They're directive, right? Like shut the door, speed up, slow down, go fast, clean up your room, eat your dinner, say I'm sorry. These are command words. They're all over the New Testament, and Paul loves them, so why not here? If the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is so important and Romans 8 is the highlight reel, why no imperative verbs, Paul? Here's what I think. 
This is my take on it. You don't learn the power of the Grand Canyon by reading a brochure about it. You learn the power of the Grand Canyon by standing there with your mouth open. You don't appreciate a painting by taking an art history class. You gotta go stand in front of it and see it. The beauty of a symphony is not the notes on the page. The beauty of a symphony is sitting in a crowded concert hall and listening to it. And so Romans 8 is Paul walking us through the art gallery of God's goodness, directing us to stand in front of this massive, beautiful painting called The Holy Spirit's Work in Your Life and just behold and go, whoa. He's not being prescriptive, he's being descriptive. I'm not giving you a brochure. I'm not talking about the what. I want you to see the who. I want you to see him, to really look at him and look at him long enough until you really, really get it. And I feel what happened in some of our hearts when I said that. You go, well, that's so frustrating. Just tell me what to do, Paul. <laughs> Give me something. And I feel you on that, but here's the practical insight. By introducing us to the Holy Spirit's work in this way, Paul is setting us up for something that we need to understand. No Christian can tell another Christian what the Holy Spirit is doing in their life. And that is the maddening beauty of this. Even me as your pastor, like you can come and meet with me and I can exhort you, I can encourage you, I can point you to God's word, I can give you my counsel, I can pray for you. But at the end of the day, this is between you and him. And that's so frustrating. But this is part of what Paul wants us to see. Enough of the context, let's get to it. Ready? Romans 8. Paul makes four declarations about the work of the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through all four of these, and we're going to let the text drive us. So declaration number one, here you go. The Holy Spirit makes us alive. The Holy Spirit makes us alive. This is where Paul starts, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Here we go. There is now, or there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful way to start this passage. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, however, he's talking to Christians, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the, the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Holy smokes, Paul. <laughs> Like fire hydrant, here you go. Well, here's what Paul's doing here. You can see the back and forth of this text, right? 
Paul's contrasting two kinds of life in this passage, life in the flesh and life in the spirit, like he's playing theological ping pong between the two. There are three terms that we've got to understand if we're going to get underneath what Paul wants us to understand here. First off, the law. You saw that come up a lot in this passage, right? What's he mean by the law? This refers to God's law in the Old Testament. You've heard that there are 10 commandments, right? Well, I hate to break it to you. There's actually 613. If you read all the Old Testament, there are 613 commandments. Everything from dietary laws, like how to eat, what to eat, how to plant your crops, when to do that, what kind of clothes you're supposed to wear. This is super comprehensive. 613 of them. The 10 that you know are the ones that Moses came down from the mountain with, but it led to 613 commandments, and you've got to keep all of them if you want to please God according to the law. Yikes. And Paul, being a Jewish believer in Jesus, brings up the law at this point because he wants us to ask a question. Even if you kept all 613, is God pleased with you? Is that what really God wants for your life? And his answer in verse 3 is an emphatic no, impossible. Why? Because the law cannot conquer my sin. It only exposes it. I can't keep it. Quick illustration if you don't believe me. Everybody in this room and everybody watching online, do not think of a pink elephant. What are you thinking of? Pink elephant, right? That's how sin nature works. Everything that God says don't do, immediately when he says that, something inside of me goes, huh, I wonder what that apple on the tree tastes like. This is how sin works. My inability to keep God's law reveals that what I need most is not to behave, but to be new. And no legislation on stone tablets or otherwise can give me a new heart. So here's the good and the bad news, North Canton Chapel, is that God doesn't want your behavior. He wants your heart. So to try to live your life by keeping the law is basically a death sentence, which is why Paul, in verse 2, calls it the law of sin and what? Death. Outward perfection, inward decay. Outward projection, inward disconnection. Outward performance, inward pride. Do you know anybody who lives like that? I know a lot of people who live like that. It gets worse, though. Paul introduces a second term in verse 3 that gives the reason why I always want to think of the pink elephant, the thing that I should not do. Here's his second term. He says, the flesh. Did you see that come up in this passage? Ten times that phrase comes up. So what does it mean? The flesh is the selfish, twisted, dark, backward, warped part of Brandon Marshall without Jesus. And every one of us has that. We're born that way. I know it seems unfair. How'd this happen? Ever since our spiritual great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, ate the fruit, we have inherited a sin nature, and we can't escape it. It's called the flesh. And Paul brings it up here. He says, the law is weakened by my flesh. Jesus, though, came in the flesh to conquer sin in the flesh. Flesh is death. Flesh is hostile to God. Flesh can't please God. What's Paul saying? You hear him being a lawyer here? He's just like ramping up his argument. What's he saying? He's saying if you want to try and live life on your own terms and try and impress God by keeping every jot and tittle of the law, have at it. You'll fail. 
You can't impress God with your behavior. You can't earn his favor. If you try to do that, you will fail because in Christ, God's perfect standard has been satisfied. And if you think you can add to it to justify yourself, you're basically saying Jesus is not enough. And if you get there, you are rejecting God's perfect provision in his son. That's like spitting in his eye. So now we're left with a little bit of a quandary. We go, okay, Paul, well, what am I supposed to do then? If life doesn't come through the law, how can I really, truly, freely, finally live? Term number three, the Spirit. Here's where he's coming at this. If you thought Paul spills ink on the flesh at 10 times, he says the spirit 11 times. And like a symbol crash, it finds its ultimate expression in verse 11. Listen, he says this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Now, do you believe Jesus was raised from the dead? Not a rhetorical question, okay? He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. Here's what Paul's saying. This is a massive theological dump truck that we've got to take in. He says, Jesus' resurrection in the power of the Spirit is the Father's approval that the requirements of the law have been satisfied in him. I could never meet all 613 of those things. Jesus met every one of them, and so his righteousness is now my righteousness. That's incredible. And that's true for you. If you've said, I am a great sinner and Jesus is a greater savior, you now have Christ's righteousness. Praise God. Now here's what that means. The Holy Spirit does what the law could never do. The Holy Spirit makes me alive, not by working from the outside in, but from the inside out. He doesn't change my behavior. He changes my heart. He carries me from death to life and converts me from this flesh-bound dead man into this spirit-born new man. That is the gospel. John Bunyan, who wrote the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, puts it like this. He said, run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands, but better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Holy Spirit gives us what is essential because he gives us God's goodness. So that's declaration number one. The Holy Spirit gives us life. Now that sounds great, but give me something to do with this, Paul. Declaration number two. The Holy Spirit makes us fearless. The Holy Spirit makes us fearless. Pick it up in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to that. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You could also say sons or daughters of God there. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is the term that means daddy. It's this incredibly tender, intimate term. It's not a Swedish band from the 70s. It means daddy. Like you crawl up on, your lap, on his lap and say, oh, that's how we address Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Now, Paul starts off with a really strange statement here in verse 12. Look at it again, verse 12. 
He says we are debtors. Basically, this is, if Christ has freed you from sin, don't put the shackles back on again. Don't do that. We are debtors. We are in someone's debt. We are the undeserving recipients of someone else's unmerited favor. We don't deserve the goodness of God. And so we have an obligation, and it is to kill sin. It's like this great reformed banner that said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So here's the question. How do I do that, Paul? How am I supposed to do that? If we could drop the wall here a minute, do you want to see that addiction gone in your life? You want to see that anger that's like simmering beneath the surface toward whoever? Do you want to see that gone? How do you do that? Do you just try harder? It's important to see what Paul does here. Take a look in verse 14 again. You've got to see these. Verse 14, there's a progression. These are all connected. Verse 14, if you are led by the Spirit, that means that you belong to God. And then verse 15, if you belong to God, you're not a slave anymore. You don't have to be afraid. And then verse 16, if you're not a slave anymore, then you're adopted into his house. You are an heir. That means that everything that God has is now yours. And you get to call him Daddy. That means that when we come time to do battle against sin, we don't do battle against sin in an attempt to prove ourselves. We don't do it to try harder, like to outmuscle sin somehow. I can't do that. We don't do battle against sin so we can earn a seat at God's table. We do battle against sin out of the identity and victory and security that is already ours as sons and daughters of the king. That is such a reversal from how most of us are taught to think about sin, right? Bad, don't do that anymore. Stop that behavior. How many of you got that growing up, right? God is not interested in that for you. God knows that you must be made new, and so that's where he starts. Here's Paul's answer. The freedom to let go of who we once were lies in who the Spirit says that we now are. Fearlessness is an identity issue. God changes who I am. It's the result of my new status of adopted son given to me by my Father, achieved in the work of Christ, and then affirmed in the Holy Spirit. This God, who I used to rebel against, whose authority I used to sneer at, and whose love I used to scoff at, I bow at his feet only to hear him welcome me up as an adopted son. What kind of an amazing transformation is that? The Holy Spirit gives us what's essential because the Holy Spirit shows us God's goodness. And that's declaration number two. The Holy Spirit makes us fearless. But now Paul goes somewhere that we might not expect. After saying the Holy Spirit makes us alive, 1 through 11, the Holy Spirit makes us fearless, 12 through 17, he now grabs the wheel and makes a sharp turn in another direction. Declaration number three is the Holy Spirit gives us hope. Take a look in verse 18. For I consider 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, that is a striking statement, especially when you consider what Paul knew of suffering. He talks about his experience in suffering in 2 Corinthians verse 11. Just listen to this. This is Paul's life. Imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift on the sea. Frequent journeys in danger of rivers, danger of robbers, danger of my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not inwardly burning? That's his resume. So what can Paul possibly mean when he says the glory to be revealed in us? He's going to get there, but before he does, Paul gets gut-wrenchingly honest about why we so desperately need hope. Back to Romans 8, look in verse 22. Here's what he says. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That phrase right in the middle of that, groan inwardly. Can you think of a better term to describe our world than that phrase? We've got to sit with that for a minute. Because you saw the news this weekend. Four minutes from my house, a waitress was shot. And she's dead. In Indianapolis, there's another mass shooting, and then in another city, there's another black man who's dead, and then in another city, there's another white officer who's dead. What do you do with that? This is creation groaning. This inward, exhausted, nearly inexpressible sigh of anguish. What does he mean? The Holy Spirit gives us hope? Where's the hope in that? Back to the text, verse 26 Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us, or for us with groanings too deep for words. It's one of the most beautiful expressions in all of Scripture to me. We don't know how to pray. We watch the news and we go, oh. And the Holy Spirit takes that Oh, and he translates it to the Father who hears my heart. Should give us a profound sense of comfort. In this continual practice of emotionally draining prayer, I learn the Spirit's strength. Yes, our groanings are deep, but the Holy Spirit is deeper. Something we got to get our heads around, church. The call to Christ 
is a call to suffer. And to suffer for the right reasons. Let me offer you a better, harder, tougher, but ultimately more satisfying way to understand this inward groaning. Maybe the way to groan in this broken and grieving and groaning world is to remember that we groan not because of your stance on gun control or what political party you're affiliated with or because you're woke or because of whatever you believe about critical race theory and yada yada. Maybe the world is waiting for the church to show what it means to groan for the right reasons because image bearers who are loved by God, pursued by God, people for whom Jesus died, actual real humans have lost their lives. Maybe we're the one people who grieve for the right reasons. Have you ever thought of that? Maybe our world is waiting for the church to have the courage to look past the politicization of the human life and become the one place on planet Earth where for the sake of the gospel is so depoliticized that we actually see people the way that Jesus does. To love God is to love neighbor, and to love neighbor is to suffer. And to suffer for the sake of the gospel is to learn the sufficiency of Christ. When Jesus calls you, he doesn't call you to some quaint, nostalgic, comfortable church. He calls you to suffer. Why? How dare he? Because suffering is where we learn the goodness of God. And so we lean in, we welcome suffering, if only to be counted worthy of suffering for the sake of the gospel. I'm becoming more and more convinced as I think about church and I think about what's coming. that The greatest apologetic for real, genuine Christian faith is a willingness to suffer when I get nothing else out of it except for the magnification of the name of my Lord Jesus. In my weakness, the world sees that he is strong. In my suffering, the world sees that he is sufficient. In my emptiness, my world sees that he is enough. He is our hope, church, Christ and Christ alone. And so that's why Paul picks things up again in verse 28, this hopeful, renewed vigor where he closes this declaration like this. He says, for those who he foreknew, this is talking about Christians, those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers. Now get this. And those who he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. Five verbs, an unbroken linkage, all in the past tense because in God's mind, they've already happened. He foreknew you. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you and then he glorified you. That is God's sovereign activity on your behalf. The Holy Spirit gives us hope because underneath the headlines that prompt inward groaning, louder than the storm clouds of forthcoming persecution, deeper than my own doubts and my own fears, God has spoken and he is enough. And so in that confidence, all of the suffering is replaced by satisfaction, and groaning gives way to glory. The Holy Spirit gives us what's essential because the Holy Spirit shows us God's goodness. Now, here's the thing. Paul had to go here. 
He had to talk about suffering because the mountaintop view of what comes next is only meaningful if you let the Spirit courageously, joyfully, willingly lead you through the valley of suffering. So let's pick things up in verse 31 with the fourth declaration. Declaration number four, the Holy Spirit gives us victory. I love this one. Because now Paul with a gas tank loaded of theological rocket fuel, steps on the pedal and launches us into the one of the most powerful, almost poetic stanzas in the New Testament. First, he sets up a not-so-imaginary scenario, though. Okay, look in verse 31. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, that lands oddly, because I just told you everything that just happened to Paul. The answer is a lot of things. Who can be against you? A lot of people can be against you. Paul's walk with Jesus got him persecution. This isn't about popularity. So it's a little disingenuous, Paul. It's kind of like speaking out of both sides of your mouth there. What can be against you? Who can be against you? A lot of people can. And here's Paul's masterful lawyer rhetoric. In this not-so-imaginary scenario, what he's, wanting, what he's wanting us to conclude is that if you took everybody who's against you and the God who is for you, there is no comparison. If God is for you, who can be against you? What can the world do to you? Nothing. Nothing that matters. To have the God of the universe as your source of life, security, hope, and victory means that everything else pales in comparison. And then standing on center stage in the middle of a courtroom, raising his finger, Paul unloads a barrage of five cascading rhetorical questions. Here he goes, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So he paints this adversarial, like, honestly alarming portrait of the Christian life. And then all of those questions eventually land in another symbol crash in verse 37 where he says, no, in all of these things we are what? More than conquerors. You think you're almost secure? No, 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 no. You are incredibly secure if God is for you. Here's what he says. More than conquerors through him who loved us. Who is that, church? Jesus. Makes all of the difference. And now, enter the closing argument. Unable to stop this freight train, Paul closes out with a crescendo in verse 38. He says, For I'm sure neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you can almost hear him say amen as he slams the briefcase closed. Court adjourned, verdict delivered, period, end of story, victory achieved. You know why the doctrine of the Holy Spirit matters, North Canton Chapel in 2021? 
because almost everybody I know is living in fear of defeat. Almost everybody I know is afraid that what matters most will be taken away. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to a church in Rome who felt the exact same way that you feel, says, not while King Jesus is on the throne. Don't be naive. You're going to do battle with death every day. You're going to wrestle with fear constantly. You're going to live through suffering, but praise God, he's already won the victory. So here's what I want you to see. Romans 8 starts with no condemnation. And then it ends with no separation. And then in the middle, no defeat because of the Spirit who makes it all possible. The Holy Spirit gives us what's essential because the Holy Spirit shows us God's goodness. The Holy Spirit makes us alive. He makes us fearless. He gives us hope and he gives us victory. But I'm not dumb (laughs) because I know when I say that, What you really want to say back to me is, well, it doesn't feel that way. And I get that. So we're going to close our time in just a little bit by singing a hymn. It was written in 1758 called Come Thou Fount. It's got a lot of old words in there. But before we sing together, I want to bring us back and end with a question. Is Jesus yours? He makes all the difference. It doesn't mean you're going to have an easy life with roses and sunshine and all of that. In fact, it's probably going to get harder. But nobody inherits Jesus. You don't get Jesus by proxy. You don't get Jesus because your parents were Christians. You don't get Jesus because you come to church. You get Jesus because at some point in your life you said, I am a great sinner and Jesus is a greater Savior. And then Romans 8 becomes true for you. And it's a battle. I get that. Doesn't mean you can't have bad days. But life, true life, fearlessness, real fearlessness, hope that lasts and victory is sure, all depend on how you answer the question, is he yours? Let me pray. Our God and our Father, You've created this universe and you've filled it with everything that brings you pleasure and glory. And then you made us your people and we've chosen something that does not satisfy again and again and again. It is our lasting legacy. And then out of your goodness, you gave us Jesus to fulfill everything that I never could, to pay a price that I couldn't imagine so that I could have peace with you. I could be fully alive. I don't have to be afraid of you anymore. Be called your son. Father, we love you. And we need your help. Remind us of your goodness. Show us who you are. And help us. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. 
If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.